Call Saul. Season 3, Episode 4 is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who are going to wrap everything up neat and tidy, just like Gus does. I'm Rob Sestrino, and here is my podcast hermanos, Antonio Mazzaro. Rob, how are you? I'm going to I'm going to uh, crumple this podcast up into a little ball and shoot it into the garbage can. That's fine. That's fine. Yes. As long as you're not picking stuff off your shoes uh on this podcast and getting it all over uh everything. I have a shoes for podcasting, they say. So we're good on that. Uh, I, I, as far as what I'm doing on my end, you, you don't know what's going on. So it doesn't really matter. All right. Well, we have a lot of business to discuss here today, Antonio, because I think that this was my favorite of these four hours we've seen in season three of Better Call Saul. Mine too, of of this season for sure. And certainly that means that it's among uh, one of the better episodes of the series. Uh, it makes sense that when you introduce Gus Fring into the story, that part of the story is really going to pop and enables you to do the things like they did at the beginning of this episode. But I think the other thing is there is a lot of forward motion in the Jimmy and Kim story. And there are a lot of I, – I think what the show does really well sometimes is we see a lot of different people on the show running capers, right? Like there are – these plans set in motion, we usually see this with Mike, where Mike is running some kind of plan and we as, we as the audience don't really know what's going on and it, the fun in the show and a lot of times is finding out, like, what's the scheme here? What's the angle? What are they playing at? Like, what are they doing? And what's happening with Jimmy and Kim right now is an all-timer in that regard because this could be the end of Chuck and it certainly jeopardizes Jimmy's law license and since we know that ultimately he is practicing law later, this certainly seems like it could lead to the end of Chuck and so it's fascinating watching Jimmy and Kim play out their plan and not really knowing where it's going. That story has just so much juice for me right now, Rob, that both sides of the story are humming and, and it produces a really good episode. Yeah, we have a lot to break down and an oddly structured episode where really the first 35 minutes was like all Gus stuff and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Mike being sort of like a little bit involved uh, with that and then, uh, you know, a little bit involved with the uh, Jimmy storyline. So, uh, a lot of uh, different moving parts, but almost like two separate stories that happened last night. Uh, the first half was just like an episode of Breaking Bad. It was like, oh, this is the episode of Breaking Bad that we never got, where we were getting more backstory between Gus and Hector and filling in the blanks and showing jealousy that developed and evolved and how that's playing out in the timeline of Better Call Saul as we know it. It's a Breaking Bad episode for half of the episode. And then Kim Wexler's on the phone running capers. And so we're right into a classic Jimmy McGill, Better Call Saul con style episode where we don't really know what the characters are up to, like Mike with the stop sticks or Mike with the remote control car with the Kettleman's or really anything Mike has ever done for Jimmy. And a lot of the plans we see being executed as they're happening without us really knowing what the plan is, we immediately jump into that with Kim. She's calling handyman and doing all these things. So it really the structure is interesting in that it's two separate halves and yet they also found ways to bring Mike into the Jimmy story. It's just a really, really good episode. I think they did a fantastic job. It's it's better call Saul and Saul himself, Jimmy McGill doesn't show up, like you said, until about 35 minutes into the episode. Now, we're saying how great an episode it was, but it's also an episode that did not lean on its main character. Do you think that this is potentially a problem for the show or is this a very first world issue that we're talking about. 
I think the latter, uh, in that it is it is firing on all cylinders in terms of both all aspects of the show being compelling, having forward motion, none of them feeling like they're spinning their wheels, feeling like we're leading to something with Hector and Gus and Gus and Mike, feeling like we're leading to something with Jimmy and Kim and Chuck and all of these stories. So even though they are two very separate things, and this is always a show of two halves, we also do have some crossover when we get Mike working for Jimmy and we see some maybe an element of why their relationship is different than the relationship Mike will eventually evolve into with Gus and why Mike might actually like that relationship. And the kind of things that they're doing is very, are very different than the kind of high stakes shooting drugs out of shoes, hanging over trucks that Mike is doing for Gus. So there are a lot of different things in play here. And it would seem to be a little bit of a first world problem to say it's too much because both are really going forward. And if they're separate, they're separate. And I don't think it takes away from the show at all and I think the show found a way to make the entire episode compelling and not make us wish that once we got into the Jimmy and Kim part that we needed more Gus at that point I feel like it it did a really good job of servicing both angles and so before we get into the story let's just reset our links to subscribe to the podcast go to postshowrecaps.com slash bcs itunes we do appreciate your feedback and your star ratings which do help more people discover the podcast and of course you can email us after you watch the show every week bcs at postshowrecaps.com antonio that is great we certainly appreciate the feedback got a lot of great feedback this week i certainly appreciate people sending in their thoughts and questions as the episode episode airs. And I'm glad, Rob, that we have some stuff to discuss that is a little open-ended, that we have a little bit of a mystery on this show with what's going on with Jimmy and uh, Kim's plan, because that leads to a lot of good speculation. I've seen some great ideas sent into us. We have some good thoughts about uh, that, and I think that there's a lot of that speculation going on online. So I'm excited to talk with you today. Yes. And do you think that we got better star reviews than Mike did on his Yelp page after fixing Chuck's door? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let's wait and see how that plays out. Uh, we'll get into that for sure, because the uh, I think that there might be some undoing there. Uh, it's not always a good idea to photograph a newspaper that has the date and time that you were in the residence taking the pictures on it. Uh, that might lead Chuck to realize exactly how this plan worked out. All right. So let's pick things up uh, rather than going through it in order. Uh, I think a lot of people were left wondering, myself included, at the end of the episode when we got out of the deposition is that, I mean, is that the right jargon to be using not quite a deposition let's just say like a uh, it was like a disposition like a pre-trial disposition okay the dispo after they yes. got out of there then kim basically gets chuck to admit that he made a copy of the tape and then they come down she comes down and meets up with jimmy and uh, they say bingo. Bingo, which is not. Yeah. Is this related to uh, the old folks? Yes. Is this around? a callback to the season one finale or that Marco? Uh, that, I think that was Marco. But bingo <laughs> is where Jimmy really has a big meltdown about everything that happened with Chuck. And he uh, he's on the mic at the uh, at the senior center and really talks about Belize and all these horrible things. And it's a it's a terrifying moment for Jimmy. It's the most unhinged uh, other than the destruction of the tape itself. I think that we've seen him on the show so it is definitely a, a little meta uh, for them to end an episode with the word bingo an episode not titled that but they really do seem to be setting chuck up for a 
to fall. Um, we talked on this podcast last week about how maybe this will turn into a courtroom show where we have an official trial of Jimmy McGill and we do all these things where we put Chuck on the stand somehow. We confront him in cross-examination. I think this show's finding a way to have its cake and eat it too. They're not doing like a full-blown jury selection courtroom drama, but we are going to see another hearing where Jimmy has the opportunity, it seems, to really put Chuck on blast and to give him not what in in the time at the time with Mesa Verde was the most embarrassing moment of his career. I think Jimmy is set to top that with whatever he and Kim are planning, and I have some thoughts about that. Okay, sure. good because I don't know necessarily what they're trying to prove. The fact that that. Chuck made a copy of the tape. Does that mean that Chuck, this is basically evidence that this was all a setup for Jimmy and this was entrapment? I think that that could be part of it. I think ultimately there are a lot of stories they can tell about Chuck McGill, right? And we have talked about how when Chuck begins this series, he's a flawed man who won't quit the practice of law, but his flaw is this EMF sensitivity. Law flaw. Uh, the law flaw. Uh, the Bob Law Blah Law <laughs> Flaw uh, is ultimately, uh, his flaw is this sensitivity that he has, right? He's But he's got the high ground. He has this great uh, admiration for the law. This is a man who stands uh, with the moral high ground always with his nose in the air. And Jimmy is begging him throughout the context of season two, like, roll around in the mud with me. Get dirty. If you try to blackmail me, I will quit just to know that I beat you in this regard. And by the end of season two, he gets that from Chuck. He gets Chuck down in the mud and rolling around and playing at fraud. And the problem, Rob, is when it comes to the Bar Association, whether or not you're setting someone else up or not, that conduct is not really great for a lawyer. And we've talked about how Chuck is exposed significantly as a result of the actions he's taken with Jimmy, not only taping him, right, but planning the taping, setting this thing up putting the stuff on the walls, uh, doing this thing where he's faking this condition or making it look worse than it was so that Jimmy will admit it. And then afterwards, setting Jimmy up, knowing full well that Jimmy's going to do what he's going to do, having duplicates of the tape made, knowing that Jimmy's going to come in and destroy one. All of this looks really bad in terms of Chuck's hands not being clean. And then you have the other shoe, which is that throughout the series, Jimmy has acted as Chuck's caretaker with regard to the EMF sensitivity. Multiple times, doctors have suggested that Chuck be committed, and Jimmy has refused. And now, if we get ourselves into a hearing in front of the bar, can Jimmy put Chuck's condition on trial? Can Jimmy make that part of the thing? Is it possible, Rob, that Jimmy can turn this quote-unquote disbarment hearing around on Chuck, and Chuck end up be the one that's disbarred? Um, I think that's certainly a possibility. Do you think that Kim would be on board for something like that? Not just proving Jimmy's innocence, but also destroying Chuck? This is the slip and Kimmy of it, Rob. Is The question is, is Kim that dirty herself? Is Kim in the mud? And that's another character evolution. As we've seen, Jimmy McGill pulls people down into the drain. He is the drain. These other people are just circling him. And he is really pulling them down. And as we saw from Kim, him at the beginning of the series. She had the moral high ground to a point. She said, don't help me. I help me. I don't want your assistance. I don't want this to be a thing. And then they run some cons at some local hotels and they get into a couple of things that are going on. And by that point, uh, what's going on is Kim seems to maybe like this game a little bit. But when it comes to the law, when it comes to Jimmy falsifying evidence with the squad cobbler situation, she doesn't want to hear about it, is what she says. That's not the same as Jimmy don't do it. She hasn't tried to change 
Jimmy McGill. She just says, I don't want to hear about it. Then by the end of season two, she's the one playing Lady Macbeth, telling Jimmy, like, you know, your brother, he's a real adversary. I wouldn't want to go against him. If I were, I would make sure there was no evidence. She's ultimately the one who puts this whole tape play in motion. And now I feel like she's in the mud. She too, her hands are dirty. And so, yeah, I do think that she would manipulate Chuck in this way. Uh, look at the way Chuck treats her at the end of this episode, Rob. Like, I know it's your first hearing, uh, but you got to understand that the evidence uh, standard is a lot lower. And it's like Chuck, dude, is just, he. she is rolling her eyes like no one can stand Chuck. And I think Kim is certainly not immune from hating Chuck enough to, to flip the this The DA seems to like him. The DA does a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. She's, oh, you got to apologize to your brother. You got to do this. I'm not sure where Howard is on Chuck at this point. I, he's, he's his lawyer. He's representing him. But I feel like this is a, a very risky situation for Howard, as we've talked about. The worse that Chuck McGill looks, the worse Hamlin Hamlin and McGill looks. And ultimately, Chuck's got, or Howard's got to look out for number one, for sure. So that's basically what you think that this bingo confirms, that they are going just to uh, try to attack Chuck's character as a way of getting Jimmy out. Does that sort of take away the charges against him or that's part of proving entrapment? Yeah, it's part of mitigating, I think. It's part of the mitigating factors as you look at what was going on with this particular incident and you look at how these things happen. We speculated at the end of last year that maybe Jimmy could wriggle his way out of the tape because on the tape he says, well, you feel better now, right? Like he says this thing that makes it seem like maybe he said what he said in order to make Chuck feel better, that maybe it wasn't. The, the, and the your word against mine part of the felony, that's the difficult part, right? Because uh, it, it is a thing where Jimmy's in difficult water because that does make him look guilty. But we can muddy those waters and we can muddy them by making Chuck look crazy, first and foremost. And I think the pictures taken around Chuck's house can serve two purposes. One, they can show what his house is like now. It doesn't have the Faraday cage up. It doesn't have all the lengths he went to to trick Jimmy. But two, as far as the Bar Association knows, I don't know what they think about or know about Chuck's condition. But they can show this is a guy who is not well. He's ripped all the electronic devices out of his house. Rob, for crying out loud, he's putting a gas lantern on newspaper. He is jeopardizing his own health and safety. And that's when you get into Jimmy as his caretaker. Maybe I needed to knock the door down to make sure he was okay. Uh, maybe I was worried about these things and he had me worried and that's why I was upset. Jimmy can maybe gin up some sympathy as a result of making Chuck look bad. He can also put Chuck on blast, and that's the part I'm a little interested in. When he sends Mike into the house, Mike is taking pictures, and it seems like those pictures will be used against Chuck to show what his mindset is. But the second thing Mike does, we don't really know, right? Mike pulls a page out of Chuck's address book, and Jimmy is surprised that Mike got it. There's a lot of speculation I've seen uh, around the Internet. Uh, people have tweeted at me. I've seen it uh, on uh, in comment sections. I'm just – it could be that this page – involves Rebecca, Rob, that maybe Jimmy is going to call Rebecca into this hearing and really put Chuck somehow in the in the crosshairs. Uh, what do you think about that opportunity? Do you think that's an option that's in play? Here? Yeah, I definitely think that's a possibility where we hear Mike say, you know, that he got the contact information. I mean, uh, how many other people could we possibly be talking about where only Chuck would have that contact info? 
Right. And that could be something that could potentially be used against Chuck. And remember, earlier in this season, as Jimmy is really blowing up, while he's about to destroy the tape, one of the things he says is, no wonder Rebecca left you. Right. In other words, your character is such that this is a person who can testify that you have problems, that you are that you are a real whatever. Uh, and so that is interesting. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that that address contains some information relevant to the tape and that maybe it's a safe deposit box that was rented to house the original tape, uh, the, the, the non-copy, uh, because there is this element where Kim sort of traps Chuck uh, when she walks away after confronting him after the hearing. Jimmy's like, well, and Kim says, bingo. That has to be related to the interaction and the exchange between Kim and Chuck and Howard there outside of the, the hearing room where they met with the D.A., And if that's the case, what Chuck really says in that moment is only that there's an extra tape and that it will be played at the hearing. So in other words, she's baited Chuck into making sure that tape will be played. If there's a safe deposit box in play, are they going to swap the tape out and have Chuck be embarrassed by some other tape being played? Uh, Or are they ensuring that the tape itself get played? Uh, I'll tell you what I did, Rob, is I went back and watched the scene between Chuck and Jimmy that Chuck has taped. Uh, and And I did that with the mindset of what does Chuck say? on this tape. Not what does Jimmy say, because we already know what Jimmy says and how that gets him in trouble. But the question is, what does Chuck say? And while he's being recorded, first of all, Chuck lies about his walls. He lies and says, oh, I have to put all these things up. He's clearly putting on a show there. Uh, At one point, (laughs) he's retired, and Jimmy says to Chuck, how are you going to retire before you get me disbarred? Which is certainly an interesting thing to say uh, in hindsight, and it makes you wonder, are they going to be able to use that particular comment or not. At one point, Chuck breaks down and says, I can't do the job anymore. Electricity is wearing down my faculties. My brain and mind used to work, and now it doesn't anymore. He says that exact series of quotes. And you've got to wonder if that's what they're going to put in evidence, and they're going to put basically in Chuck's face and and make it the trial of Chuck McGill, not the trial of Jimmy McGill. I, I feel like that's going to be a big part of this. Another thing is when Chuck is talking to Kim, he says, well, the evidence standards are much lower, so you know it's going to get played. In other words, you can introduce a lot of things into evidence, not just this tape. You could bring in, for example, pictures of my house and show how screwed up I am. You could maybe bring in a witness like Rebecca to testify about how screwed up I am. So it does really seem like we're leading to this thing where it's a table turn situation and they're trying at this hearing to turn the tables on Chuck. And if the room is full of his friends, if you make Chuck seem like a threat to himself because of his condition, his friends are going to say, Chuck, for the for the best for you, I think you need to step back from the practice of law. And that's where Jimmy could really burn Chuck for sure. So uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I have some other uh, thoughts on a few things. Yes. One, that is it possible that the end game here for Jimmy and Kim is not so much to disbar Chuck, but to have him be institutionalized like Jimmy has fought in the past? It's possible. I mean, Jimmy could call that doctor in uh, who hilariously plays Selena's body double on Veep. You, Jimmy could call that doctor in 
and bring her. I mean, she's wanted to commit Chuck multiple times. She's a recurring character on the show. Uh, Jimmy could call her to the stand and say, what do you know about, about my brother? Like, what do you know about this situation? What has been your observation of our relationship? And, and if that becomes something that is important, uh, then that could come into play. Uh, listen, I have no idea how the rules of evidence work at these New Mexico Bar Association hearings. All I know is Chuck has stated on the show that the rules are pretty lenient and that just about anything can happen. So it wouldn't shock me to see that doctor come into play uh, and see that be part of the situation uh, and to have her be a witness to ultimately what's gone on. It doesn't just have to be about uh, getting Chuck disbarred. It could also be about getting Chuck into a position where everyone in his life feels like for the betterment of him, he could be committed. Certainly this court or or hearing session, the Bar Association board, is not going to have the power to commit Chuck. It's not a court like that, uh, but it, they, as his friends, they could put him in a position where he eventually feels like it's the only thing he can do. In terms of the extra tape and the safety deposit box, I don't buy that they're going to attempt to switch out the tape. I, I don't think that that's where it's going, because the bingo comment does not come when Mike hands Jimmy the information where if this contact information is, you know, the bank and safety deposit box, it's almost like they know where it is ahead of time. I feel like that's the point where you would get a bingo as opposed to he confirmed it. I I feel like that to me, it doesn't seem like that those uh, two thoughts uh, exactly line up. That's true. Uh, There's a few things in play there. The first is that uh, is that the bingo isn't necessarily that he confirmed it. It's, it's more if you if you buy this theory, it's more that they baited him into really wanting to play that tape, that he is all in on playing that tape, and the bingo is he's on the hook. Like we got him. He's gonna he's gonna make sure that tape gets played, and so then the question is. Is the tape that they have, the tape of Jimmy admitting this issue, is that the one they want played? I mean, the problem that you have with this is all of these scenarios are are all good and well. They can turn the tables on Chuck all they want. It doesn't really bail Jimmy out of the scenario that he's in, which is that he did do the things that he did. That said, this hearing isn't about Jimmy switching those numbers. That wasn't one of the charges. The charges that he's pled to and what's in his confession seems to be related to the incident specifically, that he broke into a home, that he said some things in the home that made Chuck worried that there was going to be some harm and that he damaged a $3 and nine, two, two or $3 cassette tape, ultimately. $2.98. What a picayune, petty move by Chuck. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that's really going to come back. I think everything that happened in that little scene in that room is going to be something that it comes back to bite Chuck. I think Chuck's crime is hubris and this ultimate moral pride that he seems to have when he has no right to have it at this point. And I feel like the the $2.98 thing, uh, paying for this tape when in reality he had an extra one the whole time. So what loss did he really suffer? Uh, all of these things are going to make Chuck look bad. The fact that it was changed to personal property uh, rather than anything else, rather than it, and it says something could relate to the door. Like there are ways Jimmy could use these against him, uh, but ultimately. It just feels like this is a scenario where Chuck had this moral high ground. He doesn't have it anymore. The question is, is what's on that tape worse for Jimmy or Chuck? And that 
tape itself in terms of the bar association hearing i feel like it's about his confession not about the 1216 and 1261 and as far as that goes what's on the tape is probably worse from a chuck standpoint because it is chuck saying specifically electricity's wearing me down my brain and mind used to work and now they don't anymore and by the way chuck's defense to that is what i was lying That's not a great defense, Rob, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a lawyer. It's not a great defense to say, no, no, I was lying. I was playing up my condition in order. That's a really difficult ground to stand on if you want to look like you're in the right here. So that is playing that tape is going to hurt Chuck. And I feel like they've cornered him into playing it. As far as switching it out goes, I thought about this, too. Uh, I don't think, and maybe you can recall something I can't, I don't think there is another scene between Jimmy and Chuck in, after the tape has been made that, uh, that Chuck says something that could, that could be damaging to him. There's Jimmy on the curb after he goes outside of the house. Let's assume for a moment that Jimmy's recording that conversation. Uh, all, Chuck, all Chuck really says is, I told you there would be consequences. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jimmy says to Chuck, like, I hope you die alone. Uh, <laughs> that's not really, I feel like, a tape that's going to hurt Chuck. So if they were to switch the tape out, do they even have a tape that would be harmful to Chuck? I feel like what's on the actual tape that Chuck made is worse for Chuck than anything they could have recorded Chuck saying or doing. Yeah, I, and I think that that would be some sort of evidence tampering, no? If Chuck goes to play a tape, like Chuck wouldn't like cue the tape up to exactly where he wants it ahead of time so i just think that that seems like a little too much of a caper Uh, i i definitely buy more into what you're saying about uh the stuff that was said before now does jimmy have a photographic memory like that where he can remember exactly the things that were said prior to that confession perhaps not word for word right and perhaps maybe the importance of finding out where the tape is and by the way um, this can be discoverable uh, as Howard says outside the courtroom like this is not how we do discovery like uh, Kim Kim can request that tape and request a copy of it to hear before the hearing that can is, is something they can do uh, and so that could be uh, she doesn't need to have he doesn't need to have a photographic memory at this point to make the plan I think what he remembers about that scene is that Chuck really tugged on his heartstrings that Chuck did go through this thing because even in the beginning of that scene Rob when I rewatched it Jimmy is steadfastly holding to the fact that he did not as Chuck puts it rat F him Jimmy's saying I didn't do it I didn't do it then Chuck goes into this great monologue about how broken he is and how electricity's broken him down and his brain and mind are broken and all these things and that's when Jimmy turns and says you know what I did do it and so I think Jimmy probably remembers that Chuck went through that uh, heartstring monologue and got him to ultimately admit that and Jimmy knows all along that Chuck was lying and faking uh, because he was taping him so Jimmy knows all of that was a production and that I think is what Jimmy can use against Chuck because like I said Chuck's best case response to that is no I was lying and that's never something as a lawyer that you want to say to the bar association now what did you make of the DA talking about how how that she had a relative and the frequency of the boys choir really did a number on her. It almost feels like that she is saying, you know, legitimizing what the condition Chuck has is. Do you think that that's important in any way? 
Maybe in the in the context of if you foresee a scenario where the bar association is a lot of Chuck's friends, people who care about Chuck, and this is not the Chuck McGill they know, right? A Chuck McGill who would lie, who would uh, do all these crazy things and go to these great lengths, and whose house looks like how it looks. This is not the Chuck McGill that they know. So if they see that Chuck McGill on display, uh, their concern for what they would consider to be a legitimate cause for this de- departure from Chuck McGill. Gill uh, might lead them to have, from a quote-unquote sympathetic standpoint, a stance where they say, Chuck, practicing law and you do not get along right now, and I think it's time for you to part ways. Like they, that if, if people are who, who look on Chuck with sympathy uh, are in play here, and there are ways to play up that element of it and make people say, like, okay, yeah, the condition is real and it's causing you problems, then maybe that's what can really be taken advantage of to the point where they that that body will look at Chuck and say, Chuck, this is more about you than it is about him. And unfortunately, your brother, I think, was trying to care for you. And this got way out of hand because of how screwed up you are. Um, that's an easy way to turn the tables. You need that sympathetic element, I think, if you've got a room full of his friends, because they're not going to be wanting to punish him outright. I think you need to play on their sympathies a little more. So I think that's a really good call by you to point out that the DA recognized that sympathy as well. But we know in true Breaking Bad fashion that a plan never really goes as expected. Just going back to last season where we saw that Jimmy had this foolproof plan where he was going to change one number in the address and everything was going to go perfectly. And we ended up with Chuck hitting his head and having uh, this uh, basically his uh, life uh, be in danger. What do you think is going to happen here when Jimmy and Kim really turn the screws to Chuck? Do you think he could just like die on the witness stand? Uh, we talked about that, right? Like we speculated that that's at least at least a possibility. We've seen a a very public meltdown from Chuck at the copy shop, and granted, that was because there were a bunch of lights and things like that. But I'm pretty sure that will be the case in the courtroom or the bar association hearing room. So I'm not. I, I wouldn't be shocked uh, to see that happen. We've already seen it happen on the show, and it seems to have happened in in part because Chuck got shorted out by the fact that he knew something to be true, yet people were perceiving or telling him something different. And that really triggered him, especially because Jimmy was involved. And that could be the exact same scenario here. That Chuck gets triggered because people are starting to believe whatever story Jimmy and Kim are telling, uh, and that that will ultimately be what causes him to melt down. And yeah, he could die. I mean, I don't see it happening, but it, you could, for, I, I wouldn't wouldn't shock me. What about you, Rob? What shock you i it, it wouldn't shock me i mean what what i'd love to know from you is like legally speaking what would happen in an instance like that would they end up dropping the charges because i mean that seems sort of like counterintuitive where if you can uh make the the claimant uh die on the witness stand then uh you end up getting off the case yeah, it is. It doesn't seem likely, right? Like that could be when it comes to your breaking bad plans. I mean, that's a Beneke swap, right? Like that's a situation where you go in for one thing and you end up with something completely different. I think ultimately Jimmy wants to mitigate the charges against him by playing up on the sympathies toward Chuck, by playing up on Chuck's mental condition, by playing up on how dirty Chuck, Chuck's hands are with this. Uh, the part of what happens with Kim is she says to Chuck, you knew Jimmy was going to break in. You wanted him to. He destroyed the tape. And Chuck doesn't 
refute that. So if he is being recorded at that point by Kim, Chuck is on tape basically uh, by omission or by not countering that, uh, basically admitting that, yeah, I entrapped him. This was my plan. Yeah, I made a duplicate tape because I knew it was going to happen. And so all of that goes to Chuck really being part of this. And if Chuck's really part of this, then how dirty are Jimmy's hands at the end of the day? And is the is the end game not to you're not going to get them to put Chuck completely on blast and say, well, we came here for one hearing, but now we're going to have another one. Uh, But what you can do is totally mitigate the case against Jimmy with all of these factors, make Chuck look bad, have him publicly melt down, whereas Jimmy's keeping his cool the whole time and maybe even induce one of those EMF panics from Chuck that that changes the scope of the whole hearing. They look at the situation differently because one of the key players is clearly the kind of person that the other one is saying they are. Uh, They've shorted out. They've really had a problem here and who could bring in witnesses to build that. So that seems like a a very possible part of it. And if he dies, I don't think that undoes what what you would need from Jimmy. That said, I mean, if you talk about a scenario where Rebecca comes into the mix and we do close the loop on on that potentially, uh, we could kill we could kill Chuck. I mean, we could. We could literally get rid of him off of the show. We thought maybe last season was the time to do that. I remember we were talking going in to our finale podcast being like, if this is the, if this is it for Chuck, we're okay with that. And the Rebecca thing was a very minor thing that was left out there for us to wonder, like, okay, well, if we didn't resolve that, did we resolve the Chuck story? But we were ready to lose Chuck last year. So I kind of feel like it could happen now, and the show wouldn't suffer for it. Uh, that said, it seems more likely they're just going to get him to melt down and that that's going to change the scope or the uh, the way the hearing and the, the people involved in are viewing the charges against Jimmy. And that's a that's a big thing that we'll see on display. I should add, Rob, my favorite part of this is how Kim and Jimmy both are protégés of Chuck in many respects. Like Jimmy looked up to Chuck for so long uh, as his beloved brother who respected the law and did all these things. Uh, and Kim was trained by Howard and Chuck, so she knows how they think. And I think that that gives them a distinct advantage here because Kim and Jimmy have Chuck and Howard's playbook in their brain. Uh, the, the, the shock of what happened with the tape is that Jimmy didn't think Chuck would get that dirty. But now that he knows that he can, I don't think there's anything that Chuck and Howard are going to do that's going to surprise Kimmy and Jim. And I think Chuck is in for a surprise. He certainly didn't read the Mike situation uh, as anything other than what it was, which was Mike playing that. Uh, Chuck read it as he was fixing the door. Clearly more was in play. So I think if anybody's getting surprised in that hearing room, it ain't going to be Jimmy and Kim. Right. Chuck, uh, you can see him hyperventilating already. But in, in this worst case scenario, though, where would that leave us in terms of Jimmy's uh, descent into becoming Saul Goodman? I mean, the only thing I can think of okay if the chuck thing is gone does kim say i I don't want to be involved with you anymore that you and i collaborated to help murder a man not necessarily intentionally but maybe more in a manslaughter sort of way and because of that then is she going to want to keep her distance and then that ultimately without sort of like his moral compass he becomes saul goodman 
Possibly. I do wonder, uh, the other shoe with Kim is what the heck is going on with Mesa Verde, man? Like she seems to be spending a lot of her time working with Jimmy and not a lot of her time working on this client that was alleged to be so big that she needed to hire help to help her with it. And she needed to work around the clock. And we saw her sleeping at the office and getting some gym time and going right back to work. If that is so important, how much effort and attention is she paying to them versus Jimmy? Is she going to screw up Mesa Mesa Verde because of what she's doing with Jimmy. And is that going to be a wedge that is driven between them? I will say you can't spell uh, manslaughter without man's laughter. And so I'm not sure that that she's going to really be. Uh, I've yeah. heard it before, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I also, yeah, you can, uh, you could, yeah, there's a lot going on there. But yeah, uh, you can't really do with those. You can't really deal with Chuck without knowing that maybe Kim doesn't want him dead, but he hasn't exactly been good to her. I mean, she, he screwed her over on Mesa Verde. She knows he's playing up his condition. She had that big blow up to him, even though she knew that he was right about what happened with Jimmy. Her view is you caused this, Chuck. Like, it is your treatment of him that has created him and made him the way he is and she had that huge blow up to him he was so patronizing to her when he made her make him coffee in the early hours at HHM when he tried to tell her what a scumbag Jimmy was and he went all the way back to his dad's cash register I don't think Kim and Chuck are on great terms and so I don't think Kim Kim wants to kill him but if he ended up dead because of his own problems and maybe they, they exacerbated those problems a little bit but that only happened because of him because of the lengths he was willing to go to to screw his brother over I'm not sure Kim's going to lose a ton of sleep over that. And realistically, I don't think she's going to boot the relationship. Over okay. That. So it would be a little bit of a crossroads as to how we get from Jimmy to Saul. One sort of like the yeah. uh, chief antagonist in his life is out of the way, but uh, I'm sure there is a plan for all of that. Uh, let's go back to where we end up trying to get Mike into Chuck's house. Antonio, could you just talk me through what was Kim trying to do? She was calling Calling up all the different handymen, and then how was she able to figure out who was working with Chuck? She basically called around until she found the one where they had an existing appointment. I think the theory they were operating under is Chuck's door was broken. Chuck's going to get that door fixed. Our way in that house is to have my guy, a.k.a. Mike, be the guy that shows up to fix that door. And so what we first have to do is figure out who he's got the appointment with. And then once you identify that, you need to figure out when the appointment time is so that Mike knows when to show up. And then you tell that company, we're canceling that appointment. That way, no one from that company shows up. So as far as Chuck knows everything is as it should be uh somebody shows up that he thinks is from the place that he made the appointment they show up to fix the door they fix the door and mike does a good enough job that chuck will never call into the company and be like you screwed up my door so kim is calling basically every handyman in the yellow pages until she finds the one that chuck is using to fix the door and when she finds it she cancels the appointment after she identifies when the appointment is and they send mike in his place and then uh, Mike as the handyman was classic. Yes, it was great. Like, it seems like Mike really likes doing this, but I love Mike standing there with that, uh, with that drill, Rob, and just really, really just, uh, just triggering Chuck ultimately, just sitting there making that noise standing. It's almost like, uh, I love the noises on Breaking Bad, like the bell and things like that. This is Mike's drill, and I love that noise. It's hilarious to me. Yeah, Mike really did uh, enjoy being the uh, photographer and uh, handyman. And I think he also really enjoyed uh, chasing uh, Jimmy away uh, with the drill. I do the same thing with my kids with the dust buster. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, ah, it's loud. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, and your kids, are, I'm sure that that's not something that, uh, I have a sensitivity to Dustbusters, Daddy. Yeah, yeah that's hilarious. Uh, no, yeah, Chuck was really terrified. He was a tail between his legs. I love, the, the best moment is when Chuck starts up the steps, uh, and then I think maybe he has a thought, like, I'm going to say something to this guy, and he starts walking back down the steps, and Mike is standing there, not moving, uh, just triggers the, uh, the drill again, and Chuck tucks his tail between his legs and runs yeah, upstairs. Yeah, very funny. Like I said, I do think that that's going to come back on Jimmy. Like Chuck will be able to identify uh, that it was Jimmy who did this uh, because he's going to see if they use those pictures, he's going to see that day's newspaper on the lamp and he's going to put that together. Like that was the day I let the handyman in. That handyman was working for Jimmy. Oh my God, he did it again. Like he's going to put that together. And ultimately that might be the thing that breaks Chuck or that causes him to truly melt down. And he's going to start spouting that off if he recognizes it in the moment. And people are going to say, oh my God, you're so paranoid like you really are screwed up dude like and if you're paranoid about this then everything that's in this like you're not a good witness because keep in mind Jimmy was fighting and Jimmy and Kim were going over that confession to make it as broad and as vague as possible and there wasn't a lot of uh, wiggle room on that like they didn't really get too much pushback from Chuck and Howard about the broadness or the vagueness of it and so that can be manipulated once they get into the room even if Chuck does remember that it was Mike who did this to him and yeah you're right Mike seems to enjoy this Um, Alan Seppenwall Rob this is the first time I've read his thoughts on this season I thought he had a good taste on what was going on with Mike. His view was that this Mike is a Mike that you can actually understand why he might want to work with Jimmy. My take personally is that Mike seems to hate Jimmy. Like even when they're at lunch, uh, when they're going over, what does Mike say to him? It's like, is our business concluded? Like we done here? Mike can't stand. Yeah, like what? And Jimmy is begging for Mike to trash talk Chuck, and Mike has zero interest in doing that. Doesn't want to talk to Jimmy at all. But you can see that Mike does. He did like fixing something instead of breaking it. And keep in mind, Mike was a police officer. There was a time when Mike was on the right side of these things and was for justice and peace and good and all of these things. We understand that we saw in 5-0 in season one why that got tainted. But Mike was an officer of the law at some point. So it's not we assume that it's easy for him to go throughout the underworld and do these things. But he gets a job offer from Gus Fring and this episode and he doesn't just flat out accept it he says it depends on the work so this is not a mike who maybe when he gets to breaking bad part of the reason why he works with jimmy is the same reason jimmy likes working with mike like they both like the the action they both like the capers that the two of them get into they're they're lower stakes uh, yeah there's a little bit of uh, chicanery involved but they're not murdering people or setting up drug dealers or anything like that and maybe mike of breaking bad actually likes a little uh, break and likes working with jimmy for that reason yeah uh just to go back to the diner scene where jimmy is asking for mike's assessment of chuck like he seems like a real prick right and you know uh, mike is like uh, you know uh, nothing, nothing. Yeah. And this is a thing for both of the brothers. If they ever, you know, hear any third party say that they like the other one, they, they just uh, it kills them. Yeah, they and they don't. Right. It just doesn't go like it just they're not getting other people in that in that realm. And it is not like it's funny because we hear Paige, for example, from Mesa Verde talking trash 
about Chuck and saying, like, can you believe McGill? Like, he did this. He said this. He told me I was muddying the waters and all these things. And Paige will talk trash about Chuck all day long. But Mike doesn't seem interested in it. And a lot of the times when Chuck tries to run Jimmy down, people aren't interested in talking back either. So there are some people within the universe who will talk trash. But a lot of the time, these people don't want a part of this sibling rivalry. And yet it seems like Howard and Kim are all in on it now. Mike has kept his arm's length distance. Uh, He just wants to eat his breakfast, Rob. Do you think that by next week we'll be into the court case? Or do you think that this is going to be something later on down the season, potentially season finale? I don't I don't see why we would delay it. Like, I, I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to have the big moments that we're expecting. I think they're going to come next episode. I think that we're on a collision course for that. We signed the confession. It's done. Like, the die is cast in terms of that. Jimmy is set. He's not going to have any criminal penalty for his actions that he took against Chuck with breaking in the door and everything. Remember, the, the tape itself, that was never part of any criminal charge. And I believe it's not part of the Bar Association confession. So they're only going to look at what happened with the charges themselves. And so that's done. As long as he doesn't get in trouble for a year and reports to his officer and does his community service, he's good to go. The criminal element is done. The die is cast. I don't see any reason to delay this thing. Maybe we could get into discovery. But again, all that's going to do is show us the details of their plan before we see it in motion. I think it's much better for the audience to just see that plan play out real time and be surprised by what happens without much more details on that. All right, so let's start to move over to the other side of the aisle and explore the Gus and Mike and Hector of it all. But first, let's just thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast, and those are our friends over at True Car. Because there's something about True Car that some people possibly somehow don't know, Antonio. Using True Car can help you buy a used car, too. In fact, there's over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy a new or used car, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better car buying experience through our True Car certified dealer network. Mike probably uh, has a lot of car pricing information from uh, watching all those cars come in and out of the toll booth. Yeah, and buying and selling cars to use as burner cars. Uh, this is something Mike is, uh, Mike's ears are perking up when you're talking about True Car Up. Yeah, and I bet that the uh, amount of money that uh, Gus Fring was trying to give Mike was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of the average savings of $3,000 off MSRP that True Car users can save. You know, there's over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. You can see what other people are paying for the car that you want, so you'll get a fair price and feel confident. And with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy car buying experience. And with True Car, you'll easily find the new or used car that you want. So when you're ready to buy that new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, Antonio, I really was uh, loving everything going on with Gus and Hector last night. It is so fantastic that not only can we tell more of the Jimmy McGill story, which we've loved to see, and I think they've made the Chuck part of this this character a huge part of his overall story. And as we talk about what happens with Kim, would she be upset if Chuck died? We can also say Jimmy might be upset, right? And maybe it's knowing that he took his brother to that place that turns Jimmy the way he is. We're also getting so much color about the history of Gus Fring, which frankly was something in Breaking Bad that I think we had a lot 
lot of room for by bringing Giancarlo back onto this show. I feel like you put yourself in a situation where you can tell these stories. And I think that that's a really cool element of this. I like that we're, we're doing a, we open this episode with a flashback to a very familiar setting, but it's from a time that we did not really cover at that setting in Breaking Bad, the poolside of Don Eladio, Rob. Yeah. Now, Antonio, could you explain where in the timeline this scene takes place? Absolutely. Uh, This is probably somewhere in the Breaking Bad timeline, or at the very least, it is within, uh, if if you talk about the whole timeline of the show, Everything before Better Call Saul, uh, everything that happened with, with Gus and the cartel and Don Eladio at the poolside, where unfortunately Gus's partner, Max, was murdered, all of that occurred prior to the Better Call Saul timeline. This was before Los Pollos Hermanos was a big thing. This was before Gus Fring was a drug dealer, because in that scene, what he's guilty of is trying to get Don Eladio to buy his product and to deal in methamphetamine. So that is the first scene between Gus and Don Eladio. It occurs in Breaking Bad, and that's when Gus is really young. Yes, his partner is I watched still this alive. on YouTube also. Yes, and I watched it as well. And yeah, Hector kills his partner poolside at that moment. Just straight up kills him. And part of that is that Gus has sinned in that he's tried to get this business started and he's tried to hook Don Eladio in. Fast forward to when this scene happens, which is the scene from last night. Uh, and, and we ultimately see he's in like he's got Don Eladio in business. He's paying him a lot of money. And by the way, he may be rising up ahead of Hector because here we have the juxtaposition of Hector says, Hey, I bought this store, which we know in the better call Saul timeline is the store that got cracked down on, uh, through Gus's and Mike's actions last episode. Uh, this is the store he's talking about buying at the time. And we see him empty a bag of money with the driver of the truck from that store who we remember from last season. And that's all well and good. And And then uh, Juan Bolsa shows up, who is one of the other capos of the cartel or one of Don Eladio's other big assistants. And he's got the Gus Fring money. And that Gus Fring money, Rob, doesn't look like a lot more than the Hector money. Looks like a lot of money. Looks like a lot of money. Yeah. And this is not pleasing to Hector. As Hector puts it, it's okay. (laughs) Yes, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a lot, Rob. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) So just to go back to last week's uh, pre-credit sequence where we had the shoes hanging up on the wire and then we sort of got confirmation that, okay, yeah, that scene did occur during the Breaking Bad timeline. Is this going to be a thing where in the pre-credit sequence, are we going to flash ahead into the Breaking Bad timeline for these? Uh, It seems possible. I wouldn't say that this is confirmed to be in the Breaking Bad timeline. It's certainly possible this is Breaking Bad season one or season two stuff here. But uh, it is not entirely it's not entirely clear that this is full Breaking Bad timeline. And of course, the reason we know this is Hector's walking around. That's true. Right. Like in the Breaking Bad timeline, uh, it is by the end of uh, like really by the end of season one, beginning of season two, when we're getting into Hector Salamanca, he is full on wheelchaired out and that is not the case in this particular scene so if this occurs in the actual breaking bad timeline it is very very early on far more likely it incurs after the events of so far where we are in better call saul but before the events of breaking bad so somewhere in the nebulous between that we haven't covered on this show yet 
So is the Gus Fring of the Better Call Saul timeline, of the present in Better Call Saul, is he already in the methamphetamine trade? And if so, to what degree? Because we just saw the Hector, you know, truck uh, route get shut down. Right. And Hector is is a competitor. The idea is that the harm that was caused to Hector helps Gus's business. And Gus tells Mike in this episode, like, you did what you did against uh, against Salamanca, but you have no idea how much you helped me. Doesn't that matter? And for Mike, it doesn't. Like, it's interesting because Mike doesn't want to talk trade with Jimmy. He says, is our business done? Like, I don't want to talk to you as a, on a social level. Same thing. Gus offers him the opportunity to really know, ask why. Why didn't I want Hector dead? Like, what? Why isn't that? Don't you want to know why? And Mike is just like, it's your business. It's your business. Like he's not willing to get those details out of Gus. Gus tells Hector when they meet in the office that Gus is like, my business is a cartel business. Yours is too. Gus is basically saying like, we're equals in that we both work for the cartel. And, and Hector is like, well, no, like you, I have more seniority than you. You're going to get my product across the border now. And this seems to be Gus's own power play and own plan again. Hector, like shut down Hector's business and then eventually take it over for him. And it, it seems to me, we've talked a ton about how Better Call Saul needs to tell the story about how Hector got in the wheelchair. I don't know about you, Rob, but after last night, I really feel like Gus puts him there on purpose. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if there's any room for doubt in that, where right. we even right. got the explanation of, do you know why I told you not to kill Hector? Is because uh, that, that uh, you know, bullet to the brain, uh, he would wouldn't suffer uh, enough. Right. So the right. idea of this is how he's going to end up. I feel like that that is going to be a classic uh, Gus Fring plot that's going to end up putting him there. That will be no accident. Right. It's going to he's going to get fed something or there's going to be some element of the a poison or some kind of force thing that causes the problem. Uh, it is a really fantastic like thing a poison to, to cigar about. or something like that. You know, you got to think <laughs> yeah. about like, what are the things that I mean, this is what Gus would do to you. You know, the thing that you're yeah. going to consume anyway, he'll know it. And then he's going to uh, end up poisoning you. Exactly. And wouldn't that be fantastic? Because we know Walter took something from everybody that he did. And, and, and Walter ultimately does that in Breaking Bad with the Stevia. So uh, that would be a fantastic move by Gus here if we saw him echoing Walter White without even as a pre-echo, without even really knowing him. Uh, that would be that would be a really good callback for Breaking Bad if he were to do that. But I really feel like, yeah, Gus Fring's going to put Hector in that wheelchair. And I got to say, after watching more of the Hector story, this first scene especially, I am a little frustrated, Rob, with what happened at the end of season four of Breaking Bad. And I'm sort of shocked that I'm saying that. But on the other hand, in Breaking Bad in season four, Gus and Walter were at loggerheads. One of them, neither could live while the other survived. Like one of them had to go. And we, I think as an audience, were generally rooting for Walter for various reasons. At that point, even though for many people he was still so far gone, Gus was the villain. When it comes to Gus versus Hector, it is unquestionable that Hector is the villain of the two of them. And yet what we know from Face Off at the end of Breaking Bad season four is that Hector 
wins. Like Hector gets what he wants. He takes Gus down. It is his move through Walter White, granted, but it is his move that kills Gus. And that's really a tough pill to swallow considering you're watching such a jerk. You're watching Hector just be homophobic and angry and mean and jealous and all of these things that are just that you make you want Gus Fring to torture him. And yet we know how this story ends. So we're going to have to get a lot of joy out of that before we get to that ending. I think one of the ways to do that is really get Gus to dig the knife in and put him in that wheelchair. Right. Now, Antonio, it's also very possible. This is a story with no good guys. Uh, Gus Fring, Hector, Walter White, Saul Goodman. All these people are despicable. To an extent, right? But it is true that we're getting more shades of Gus Fring here. We're seeing him in his private moments uh, shooting basketball. Uh, Matt Coleman tweeted at us and said, is this better call Saul or remember the Titans? Hashtag go Gus. Like people are saying these things about Gus. And I think the relationship element, finding out that Gus really maybe was a partner with Max. We had Amanda Fallon asking about that. We had Brock Cheek asking about that. I think by filling in this Gus story, we are taking away uh, the one dimension of him which is pure villain and filling in like okay maybe he's operating a free clinic in the desert like maybe he is really helping people maybe he yeah he has a public cover that takes him to fire stations but isn't he doing a lot of good work and I think one of the things Netflix show Narcos did was show another side to people uh, who are in this who are in this game or who are in this trade and maybe they do good things at some level maybe there's a reason why some people like these people and not just because they're bad, but because they do good. And are we seeing the Robin Hood elements of Gus Fring? What about what a leader uh, Gus was with that speech? That's the Remember the Titans element as well, Rob, like when he's in that giving that pump up speech to his team. Yeah, I just think that if we ended up going further back and we followed the story of the young Hector Salamanca, uh, all of a sudden now he'd be a sympathetic character of the, you know, the woman that broke his heart and he was a, and, and he took care of his sick mom and he would try to make ends meet. You know, I, I just think that that's what this universe does is it shows us the journey of these characters that start out as good people and end up on this path to darkness. And uh, Hector, we have not gotten to see that point before. And maybe he was just, you know, a heel from the second he was born. Uh, we did get to see him like drowning uh the two cousins uh, <laughs> right. at a young age <laughs> yeah this is a sociopath from way back yeah so <laughs> maybe, maybe not i definitely understand what you're saying that it is that you know we are cheering at the end of uh the fourth season of breaking bad when hector is uh you know you know and gus gets and gus gets blowed up that's uh we like that Right. We like it. But now I feel very sour about it because I feel like, OK, the asshole won. And now that we're getting a multidimensional Gus. Now, that being said, also, you know, uh, that Gus might turn out to be a bad guy before this is said and done, too. You might get uh, you that hate back into Gus again. It's fair enough, right? Like I'm already forgetting box cutter Gus, which is like impossible to forget the the like the murderous Mister Rogers, where he comes in and puts on those clothes and does that horrible. Oh my God! Like how can you forget that? And yet, seeing multifaceted Gus Fring in these flashbacks and really filling in his story in the Better Call Saul universe, we haven't even scraped the surface. I don't think so. You're like, right. It could <laughs> like go Hector south. was doing at Gus's desk. <laughs> 
Exactly. Just like that. Uh, just like that. We haven't even scraped the surface. Uh, but yeah, that is a heel move uh, in more ways than one, Rob. Uh, but yeah, total heel move by Hector. And they're, they're not going out of their way to make Hector look sympathetic. They're not really... When, he, when we first meet him on Better Call Saul, he's like... Oh, please, my poor nephew. He's made mistakes. Go easy on him. Come on, guy. I'll pay you some money. Go easy on him. And then he, the next time we see him, basically, the menace is there. And you realize this guy is a psychopath slash sociopath. He's faking emotions or he doesn't have them. Either way, he is a dark, dark person. And, and he's in a position where he is really just doing horrible things left and right to our people, whether it's threatening Mike's family whether it's the heel move on Gus's desk, whether it's making jokes and flashbacks, even way back in the day, we know he's a bad guy. If you go back and review other flashbacks, he's killing people and making these jokes. Like he's just, they have not painted him well at any point in Breaking Bad and, or better call Saul. And by bringing Gus into this and showing us more of Gus, I feel like Gus has become, we're cheering for Gus at this point. Like we're literally like a fist pumping when he shows up. And uh, that's not by the end of season four, that's not where we are with it so it's fascinating to see how quickly the tables turn there's a little bit of pulling back and seeing things from a different perspective and how how that can change things for sure okay let's talk about some other things on uh, this side of the story uh we got to see where gus was sort of staking out halados and saw the dea trucks uh come through really seizing everything going on there in hector's operation he ends up getting a call from stacy who he has bought the house and and he ends up spending time there eating ice cream. Uh, what should be our takeaway from what was going on at uh, with Stacy and Kaylee? I'm not really sure about that, except to say the story has advanced. He has these responsibilities now. They've moved into this nicer house. We know that that nicer house comes attendant with uh, income responsibilities that Stacy can't meet on her own. Not even close. And so it does reset the expectations for what Mike is going to need to do, I think. Like, he can keep running these quick jobs with Jimmy, and that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, he's going to need to find a job that isn't working in that parking booth to really pay for that house and for that family. And I think it resets the bell on that because this is a Mike who is in a position to take more work with Gus Fring. And we have to realize why he might do that. We have to be reminded of that, and we have to see that in play. The part I'm curious about, and we we touched at the surface of this in our first two seasons of podcasting. The question is, to what extent is Stacy playing Mike? To what extent is she taking advantage of him? Was she making up the stuff about the bullets? Was she making up all this stuff? Or is she really scared and is she innocent in all of this? And I'm not saying she's going to be part of a bigger plan, but I didn't see any of that in this scene. It seemed to be, she just said like, hey, I'm surprised I recognize the number, indicating like you haven't called me in a while, you haven't been part of this and we know why like Mike's been up to a lot and he hasn't wanted to subject them to being followed around by whoever was following him so he hasn't showed up there but but we also know that this is something that's still meaningful to Mike and we have to make sure that we are continuing to track his motivation as he gets deeper and deeper into this Gus Fring element because he still has a reason he's doing this and it's important to reset that I think I did feel like that uh, you know she's asking him what's wrong Mike and I, I'm not sure what we were supposed to uh, take from that. Is it that Mike is considering, you know, we've seen him a couple times in this episode, turning down the money. Is it that he's thinking, oh, maybe, 
maybe I should take the money or or is it that you know he's uh, his uh, conscience is bothering him for you know uh, what happened with the driver yeah it could be all of that it could be that hanging out with Stacy reminds him of his son and reminds him of the great emotional moments that we see from Jonathan Banks in 5-0 in season one, where he essentially feels like it's his fault that his son died, that he encouraged him to go along to get along to an extent, or that he encouraged him to not do that. Whatever happened that that was why his son got killed, Mike feels like it's his fault. And being with Stacy, being with his granddaughter, uh, his son's daughter, reminds him of that and reminds him that he's got this obligation that he feels based on that. And he is going to have to do some dirty shit in order to take care of these people to the standard that they want. And all of that is a very difficult thing, I think, for Mike to swallow, because here's a guy who he wanted to get Salamanca out of his head. He doesn't want to do the, the crazy murder work. We saw the only reason he went at Hector like that at the end of the day is because he felt like Hector was a threat to his family. He felt like that needed to be resolved. Before that, it was all half measures for Mike. He didn't want to kill Hector. He didn't want to be involved with what Nacho wanted. He didn't want to take Tuco out. Like He didn't want to do those things, and then he only got to that point because his family was threatened. So this is still a guy, I think, who has a moral compass that we haven't really revisited in this season of Breaking Bad. The half measures, or I'm sorry, Better Call Saul, the half measures, Mike, the one we saw on Better Call Saul in the first two seasons, we haven't really reset or revisited that version of Mike. And this gives us the opportunity to get into that for sure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what goes on at Los Poyos Hermanos. And uh, Hector ends up showing up with Nacho and another guy. Do we know the other character's name that was there with them? I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't exactly remember. I don't. Uh, I don't know. But Nacho is the is the key player here for me. Uh, did you read that Nacho and Gus maybe have something? There was a head nod there. Yeah, when Gus shows up, that there is a moment when Nacho is about to leave and he looks back at Gus. It did seem like that there is uh, something going on there. And yet he's still one of Hector's most trusted lieutenants, such that when Hector does initially roll up to LPH, it's Nacho and this other guy who are there with him. And Nacho's the one who seems to be the cool head in the room. Uh, He's telling the other guy, like, don't stop people from leaving. Let them go. That was really funny. Uh, There was that little moment with that. And Nacho is is the, the adult in the room because Hector's prancing around doing God knows what, lighting up cigars like Max Cady and Cape Fear, just menacing everyone into leaving uh, the establishment and then going back and pulling that heel move like we talked about. Uh, knowing, I think, full well that this is a fring shop, no one's going to call the cops. Like Maybe the customers are going to call the cops. I don't know. But no one from the business is going to call the cops. The person and they're going to call his Fring. So you got to show up and menace these people. They'll get their boss here. They'll get El Jefe here, as Hector calls him. Yeah. How much do you love or dislike maybe Lyle? Lyle's pretty great, yeah. in my opinion. I'm in on Lyle. Lyle's pretty great. I'm in on Lyle as well. Uh, we had a, qu- a quote from Ian Rice, and Ian said, has there ever been a more Lyle person than the assistant manager at Los Pollos Hermanos? This is a perfectly aptly named character here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No offense to any Lyles in the audience. <laughs> Yeah, Lyle was great <laughs> casting, and uh, the, you know Hector was uh, pretty funny in this scene. Of uh, that, you know, he is just like taking soda. Lyle's not having it. Lyle's the best employee yeah. ever. Well, this is the thing. Lyle is a great employee, unquestionably, right? But the 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 dimension we see of Gus Fring from how this incident played out is that 
Gus would probably be, at least in the Los Poyos Hermanos environment, a really great guy to work with and for. Uh, he comes in and the first thing he says is, you all go home for the day. Uh, you know, come back, schedule as normal tomorrow when they're there in the morning. Nobody has to tell them what to do. They're all about their very specific tasks. They're waiting for their boss to show up when he shows up. He gives them that rousing speech. He tells them he's going to give them a full 24 hours of overtime because of the incident. He'll pay for any counseling that happened. Like, this wow. is a by any stretch, a good boss, Rob. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a lot of overtime. Yeah, a lot of overtime. Uh, and I don't know what they pay there at uh, LPH, but it, I bet they're pretty well compensated. So this is uh, this is ultimately, look, he has to have good people working for him because he has to have those people doing what he wants, not going off the reservation and doing something crazy, not causing a problem for whatever business he's operating there, not breaking his cover in any way. So he has to have a good team of good people there, and he takes care of them. Quite the opposite, Rob, uh, from what he does to his other tribe. Lieutenants who we see in this episode, mainly Victor, uh, that he meets a very different end at the hands of his boss, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Uh, the people on that side of uh, the operation, uh, Victor was not offered counseling or overtime. No, nor was Walter White, nor was Jesse, uh, nor was uh, nor was Gail Bedecker, like nor were any of these other employees. So in one world, he's the best boss to work for. And in the underworld, he's the worst boss to work for. Right. In his real business. Yeah, he demands a lot in his fake business. It's like, uh, all right, let's just like a uh, squeaky wheel. OK, whatever. Don't, don't bother me. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you guys need so that this doesn't cause a problem, I'm going to give it to you. I I will throw good money after bad because the the shipping operation of Los Pollos Hermanos, as we find out in the uh, the intro, as we find out in that cold open, that he's a distribution genius. We know what his plans are. We know how he ships the meth and the buckets of chicken batter and all of that. And we know about Madrigal and all of the larger connections that he makes. Um, this is a he is a business genius, and the shipment part of it is a huge part of it. And you don't want to jeopardize Los Pollos Hermanos. You don't want to blow that because that's such a huge part of his operation. And so it makes sense that it, whatever it costs to keep those people happy, that's what it costs. Cost of doing business for the second job, which is where the money's really made. Yeah, let's talk about that confrontation then finally when Gus ends up getting back to Los Pollos Hermanos and uh, Don Hector is waiting in his office. Waiting in his office, pulling the heel move like we talked about, just just really being offensive, uh, knowing full well this is where he would have this conversation and being really as oppressive and abrasive as possible. And like I said, what we see from the flashback or the flash, let, let's say what we see from the events at the beginning. Right. As we, we I think have acknowledged that this is the events of uh, at some point uh, not in the Breaking Bad timeline, probably after the events of Better Call Saul, but maybe not like maybe before the events of Better Call Saul. Maybe this is uh, more likely uh, Laura Maria Olson uh, had ma- messaged us and said that Hector was looking really young in the first scene at the pool. I do think that he was looking younger than he does in our Better Call Saul timeline. So the events of that first pool scene are probably before Better Call Saul. Uh, And we know for a fact that Gus is already doing great work, such that he sees himself, I think, as Hector's equal. They're both just cartel businesses. They're both part of the same operation. And it sure seems like Hector's trying to pull a boss move here and saying, 
you're going to carry my product now because my route got shut down. And in Gus's move is to say, did the cartel approve this? Like, are you sure about that? Like, we, you, I don't work for you. I work for them. And so I wonder if he's going to pull, pull rank on him at that point because it seems like Hector is trying to do that. But even in the events of that opening, which we know now are before Better Call Saul with the young Hector, it feels like Gus is well on the way to being more favored among Don Eladio than Hector is. But here's what I understand. It seems like that Gus is already at that point. He's already doing much better than Hector is doing by comparison. Yes. Why go through the trouble of shutting down his route? I understand that he hates Hector, but if his route is inferior in terms of what it's bringing in, why target him there? I, I think you nailed it. I think it seems that the, the number one reason would be that he hates Hector and that this is an opportunity for him to take Hector down. The other thing is if they are seen as equals in the eyes of the cartel, if they're both just seen as cartel businesses, and the Salamanca name and family has some standing in the context of whether it's Don Eladio or the cartel in general, uh, what you can do to rise above him if you're going to say pull rank or seniority, because clearly Hector was involved before Gus was. If you flash back to when Max got killed, Hector is one of Don Eladio's lieutenants at that point. Gus is not in the game yet. Gus works his way up the ladder by earning better, by being a better earner, but maybe Hector doesn't recognize that. And for some ceremonial or whatever you want to call it reason, maybe the cartel doesn't recognize that. This is an opportunity for Gus to flip that table around uh, and really dig the knife into Hector a little bit. And I think Gus can't resist it. We have speculated a lot on this podcast about why would Gus make this move at this time. What is it that Gus wants right now? Why is this the time? Why is he having Mike do the thing that he's having Mike do now? And I don't know the answer to that. It could be that he sees the opportunity and he's just going for it at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, having Hector show up at Los Poyos Hermanos, I mean, is this, and again, everything I know about the mafia, I learned from watching uh, The Sopranos, but is this sort of like a big no-no to show up at Gus's non-cartel-related business like is is this sort of uh, you know an act of war that now will need to be retaliated against by Gus or was the first act what does and, and and also secondly does Hector know that Gus got the truck route shut down yeah starting with the second first I don't think that's the case if it were I think you'd see a lot more vengeance and I think you'd see the bloody side of this I think Hector doesn't know why it got shut down and he feels like okay now I've been picked on or bullied a little bit by the DEA now I'm going to pick on somebody I see as lower than I am and so I'm going to go pick on I'm going to go pick on Fring and I'm going to pick on him because I'm already jealous of him as we see from the cold open from how he's already passed me by in this business I hated him since way back when I killed his partner and in part, I hated him because, frankly, I'm homophobic. Like, that is it. Like, there is some element of that to this story. And it's been introduced now multiple times where Hector is peeing in the pool when he kills Max and says they like what they see. And he makes a little kissing noise in their face and is suggesting that they're more than partners. And then we have him make the joke uh, that they're not uh, the chicken brothers. They're the butt brothers. And that is left off a little bit. But this is clearly something that he feels negatively about. And and uh, so all of that is causing Hector to really look negatively on Gus. And so that's the second part. I think if Hector knew that Gus was involved, I think we'd see a lot of a lot of it. This visit would have been a lot different. Uh, there would have been guns. There would have been fire. There would have been a lot of violence to the first part. 
I, I think that that's probably seen as a violation for sure. I, I wondered, uh, how do you prevent that from causing really irreparable harm to Gus's business? Gus's best thing about Los Pollos Hermanos is it's hiding in plain sight. It's a clear front to him and yet not clear to anyone else. And so when you have drug guys showing up and menacing and doing these things, word gets out pretty quickly. Like that's a, that's a hot spot. Like there's something bad going on there. And that's the last thing that Gus wants more so than Hector getting a win on anything. I think Gus would want to protect his business. And so that's the real big sin. But my thinking is Gus already has a plan here. Like Hector's, if you call it demise or whatever's going on with Gus, like Gus has step two planned out of this already. We see these capers forming between Jimmy and Chuck. And we talked a ton about that today, but I think that we're seeing more about this. Isn't just about getting Hector's route shut down and then being the mule for Hector and taking all the risk and making none of the money, which is what what Gus says to Don Eladio way back in the day when he's pitching Don Eladio on why they should cook meth in Mexico. Gus is saying, right now you're just carrying Colombian product into Mexico and you're bearing all the risk and not getting all the profit. Why wouldn't you make your own drug in Mexico? That's his pitch. So Gus is not a guy who's going to want to take the brunt of all of the risk of getting Hector's product across the border just so Hector can make all the money. This is not something that Gus Fring likes. It isn't the way he operates. So Gus has got, he's going to, he's got another part of this plan that is still to come. It isn't enough to get the DEA to shut down that route. Uh, he's going to take further action against Hector, and I believe it's going to be pretty quick in coming. Do you think that the Gus Fring love life will be explored in any way further than Hector just making comments about it? That's a, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not even sure if I want it. What do you think? Do you want to see that? Is that, is that an angle you want? There are rumors that he might have even had a family. He tells Walter White he had a wife and kids. Yeah, I think that we will end up getting uh, that backstory. I mean, I think that that seems like a story that they can sort of uh, give some firm answers on what's going on. there. I know there's a lot of speculation. Can I throw a crazy thought out there? Could Nacho potentially be a love interest of Gus Fring? Oh, oh, that was a Mike Bloom. Yeah. Oh, uh, possibly, uh, possibly. I could see it. I thought you were going to say son. I thought you were going to say a son of Gus Fring. No. Because um, we were speculating Ernesto might be the son of Gus Fring. That would be uh, another name that ends in, oh, Nacho uh, could be the son of Gus Fring. We already know uh, Nacho's dad. We met him with the reupholstery scene uh, earlier on with Micah and Nacho. As for a love interest, yeah, it's possible. Michael, that guy who plays Nacho, Michael Mando, is a pretty attractive guy. You could see that. Yeah. And we know Nacho is not in the Breaking Bad universe uh, as well. So who knows uh, what his fate could be. All right, uh, Antonio, anything else from this week before we uh, get to a couple more of your unanswered feedback questions? Uh, no, I mean, I really, I really am fascinated to see where both of these capers go with, with what Gus, Gus's main plan is against Hector. What's the next move? How does he get him to checkmate where he gets him in the wheelchair or he completely denudes him of his business? Uh, we know Tuco is still dealing in some drugs in uh, Breaking Bad, so he's not going to completely take that away. But what is he going to do against Hector? I'm fascinated by that. Of course, the Jimmy and Chuck and Kim plan uh, is really, really great. Uh, and I think something that I would like to see as well. So I'm really, I'm really excited, Rob. This is the mo- the best I've ever felt about Better Call Saul. I can't wait till next. Yeah, week. very exciting point uh, in the show. So Antonio, uh, let me ask you a question from Amanda Fallon, who says, uh, "I feel like every episode I say this is my favorite Mike scene, and I said it again tonight. Loved Handyman Mike. Can you think of potentially 
a different position or a profession that you'd like to see Mike do in one of these spy jobs? Yes, a psychiatrist or psychologist. I want to see Mike on the other end while someone's lying on a couch and Mike is just saying, tell me again about your mother. Like, I just want to see some scenario where Mike has to listen to somebody's bullshit for an hour straight and just roll his eyes and suffer. That's my favorite Mike. My favorite Mike is the Mike who is so over this. So anything that puts Mike in that position would be phenomenal for me. What about if Francesca has sick leave and we have to have Mike at the front desk of McGill and Wexler? Oh, receptionist Mike. A receptionist Mike. Is this a with a different outfit? He'd have to have a different outfit. I'd like to see that. I would love to see receptionist Mike. What else you got? No, right? I'm sorry. Mr. McGill is not here right now. Could I take a message? <laughs> Let me try uh, to put you through to his voice. Yeah. Uh, what if he was like some sort of a butler where uh, then he could be like coming through with like a feather duster or something where that's, yeah, that's how he's trying to eavesdrop on a conversation. Oh, he's just, yeah. Oh, pay no attention to me. I'm just a scenery. I'm background material, like the Downton Mike. I'd like to see Downton Mike. Mike. That would be good. (laughs) That would be good. I'd be a fan of Downton Mike. That would be good. (laughs) I'm I'm all in on Downton Mike. I like receptionist Mike. I like psychiatrist Mike. Like these are all, if we're doing the Mike action figure series, I'd buy every single one of those. Odd job, Mike. We're we're all in on that. Yeah, he's just throwing shoes around. Yeah, that would be great as well. Odd job kind (laughs) of is like a butler too. Yeah, well, there's that element, right? Yeah, so and Mike is kind of like a Bond villain or a Bond himself, so there's all a lot of uh, connective tissue there. <laughs> but <laughs> moving on, Rob, from the hilarious uh, series of uh, Mike action figures, and I would love, I think we would love to hear your thoughts in the comments or tweeting at us what your favorite Mike odd job would be. But this is, I think, a really good question. Speaking of uh, character evolutions from Ian Rice, and Ian says, so I think we have long assumed, as you've alluded to in the last show, that Jimmy's relationship with Kim must eventually come to an end because he's going to become Saul and she's a good and ethical person. It has been speculated that she leaves him or she faces some untimely demise due to Jimmy's antics. I'm starting to think she might break bad, just like everyone else in this universe. Jimmy, Mike, Chuck, Walter, Skylar White. Why not, Kim? I think that that would be fascinating. I I really think that that would be uh, super exciting if we got by the end of season three, where Kim has become less of the moral compass and she ends up being the immoral compass and ends up taking Jimmy down with her. Oh, that's a really good candidate for the late hashtag immoral compass. I love that because, yeah, uh, you could see that she is. A lot of what Jimmy is in terms of she does have a heart. She does have a care for Jimmy. They have a natural bond for that reason. But I feel like she's on, on many levels. She's more of the Howard and, and, and Chuck clone in that she has always thought of the law in a different way. We've seen her be a very, very, very good lawyer and really smart at the lawyer game. But we've also seen her now being uh, immediately adept at, at the con game. And we've seen Jimmy pull that out of her to an extent. And we've seen her resist it to an extent but we're now seeing her as we said full-on hands dirty with this whole jimmy and chuck brawl and the assumption would be as we talked about earlier this episode if something horrible happened to chuck would kim walk away and i think we're at a point with kim wexler right where i said like i don't really feel like she would like maybe but i don't i'm not it's not a certainty for me like i feel like kim is in a position now where her hands are dirty enough that i'd believe it if she broke bad and that the immoral compass part of that is fantastic 
fantastic because they have both mentioned to each other this fallacy of sunk costs. And so they're both on the same page in their thinking about the things they're willing to do in pursuit of the law. It's just that Kim didn't previously want to break all these rules. But I think going out on her own, lying down with Jimmy figuratively and literally, they've put her in a position where her hands are dirty as well. She's already broken bad to an extent. What's a little bit more? So I think that's a really good observation by Ian. Uh, My observation had been previously that it's possible that Jimmy might be the one to end the relationship with Kim because he feels like he's a bad influence on her and he feels like he's doing bad things for her. And if the story does include a Kim who goes into a bad place and who becomes more of a, a criminal, criminal lawyer, then you can see a situation where Jimmy says, you know what? I did this to you. I don't want to cause that harm to you. You used to be a person who had a moral compass and now it's an immoral compass. I'm out. Like, we got to end this. I'm causing too much of a problem. So maybe it isn't Kim that walks away from Jimmy. Maybe it's Jimmy that walks away from Kim. I just think we've made a lot of assumptions about how this is going to go. And I think that that would be such an interesting way to sort of turn this whole thing on its head where she ends up being the person who drags him down and not vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and I I think that we we can arc that out differently and we can go back and look at the Kim arc in this series and see that it's a trend in that direction for certain, as we were just saying. And so the question only is, where does the trend end? Is there a limit to it or does it end uh, or does it go truly? Does it truly break bad? Does it go all the way in terms of her breaking down? Does she go into the drain uh, and go past that or is she just circling it with Jimmy? Uh, and I think that's a, a very valid and open question at this point in the series and i'm not sure we've ever treated it as such but i think that's a great observation that it is uh that it is a valid one at this point that her hands are dirty she's running a legal con a con that is against the ethics of the profession in some ways uh, against chuck at this point with jimmy we don't know where that ends up but if she's willing to do that like if she's willing to put up with jimmy through all of this where does it end and we asked that question last week and i don't think we have any more clarity if anything she's muddied the waters and she's breaking even more bad And so where does it end? Nobody knows. Because how do we get to the point where we have a post Chuck story at some point? Chuck exits uh, these narrative and he's not a part of what's going on in Breaking Bad. So does that end up? I think we've always assumed that then at that point, Jimmy would get more involved with the Mike story. But somehow if something negative was to happen with Kim because of an involvement with Mike, I think that that would come up where if it was like that something having to do with Gus or Hector or Mike ends up sort of killing Kim, then over there's some sort of foul play. And I'm not talking about Los Poyos Hermanos. You would think that that storyline would end up coming up in the Breaking Bad universe. So it would be a really, really intriguing way to sort of uh, end up pushing Jimmy further into the abyss and also explaining sort of what happens to her if she ends up going off in her her own thing or going to jail or what. Yeah, because she has always been his moral compass. She's always been his lodestar, his true north, like the person that leads him to doing good things and causes him to do things out of love, ultimately. Even though they're sometimes bad things, he's doing them for the right reasons. He's doing them to protect her and not because they're because he enjoys the immoral element of it. He's trying to get one over on somebody. Those cons they run, they're they're victimless in that they don't get a lot of money out of them. They, they get a check and they don't cash it, that sort of thing. But this is a thing where 
where uh, where if she's leading him in the direction where okay we're going to f Chuck uh, and that's not necessarily where he wanted to end up. He only f Chuck the first time because he cared about Kim. Now Kim is saying let's f Chuck to hurt Chuck. That's a different Jimmy, and she's. 100% fully part of it. So as he, as he drags her down further, as she breaks worse, you're right. There is there is an interesting point there to be made about how the role she's played in his life before, where she pointed him in the right direction. She got him to give the Kettleman money back because it helped her case. And she did all these things and do the right thing. And he turned around and took the Davis and Maine job because of her, Rob. And he's constantly tried to do the quote unquote right thing because of her. If she's okay with doing the wrong thing, is that what pulls him down. I think that's a fascinating observation. All right, Antonio, the hashtag you want to go with immoral compass or is the late entrance of a Downton Mike also in play? (laughs) I'm okay with immoral compass. I really like that. I think it's a great observation, but Downton Mike is just funny to me. I'd love to see him in that uh, Mr. Carson outfit. That would be fantastic. That'd be very good. Of course, Antonio, you and Josh Wiggler are doing outstanding work on the leftovers uh, this season. I've been uh, very much enjoying the show and the podcast uh, each week. Thank you, Rob. I hope to be your personal Jesus uh, throughout the uh, the final season of The Leftovers here. Uh, I hope to be your shepherd, uh, your Jack Shepherd. This is a lot of fun, this final season of The Leftovers. If you're not watching The Leftovers, I highly recommend that you guys go back and, uh, and, and take care of that and try to catch up before this season ends and to be part of this uh, shared experience that we're going through emotionally as a result of this series. I'm very glad you're liking the podcast, Rob. Having a great time. Yeah, looking forward it. to listening to uh, the latest feedback show that you guys did. That's all up on Post Show recaps.com uh, and then uh, next week I will be en route to Toronto knocking on wood uh, Antonio will be back with a episode 5 recap of Better Call Saul Yes, and uh, speaking of the leftovers and speaking of Josh Wiggler, it will be Josh Wiggler who will be joining me to talk a little Better Call Saul, getting the leftovers team together here on some Better Call Saul. Okay, well, you guys are going to be spoiled next week uh, when Josh Wiggler and Antonio are uh, back together. Is Josh Wiggler your immoral compass or vice versa? I think it's more vice versa, if I had to be honest. Fair enough. All right. Well, great stuff. Uh, Looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say in the comments. Of course, you can email the show with your thoughts about stuff we said here today or next week's episode at bcs at postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.